everyone. Welcome to another episode of Shit, I Just Quit My Job. I'm your host, Maricela Herrera. The world's been pretty crazy lately. Lots of shitty things happening. And you know, when I used to feel that way, when I used to feel like the world was upside down and that things were bleak, what I would do is just turn my focus into work. That was it. All my energy would go into what can I do with work to advance the things I believe in. And I was in a special circumstance, right? Like I I was working for a mission-driven organization, but it's been interesting seeing the world be the way it is. So much hate, so much pain, so much everything. And not have my usual channel for impact and change. I've been feeling a little frozen. I'm I'm, I'm not going to lie. And it's, it's not because there aren't other ways to make an impact. I mean, I know there are. But there's something in me. And maybe it's tiredness or hopelessness or just mehness. <laughs> but something in me is making me feel like... I don't even have the energy for that. Like there's not even energy to pour into something. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I'm still going through this existential identity crisis I've spoken about. If I am not my job, then what am I? If I can't pour my energy into my job, then where does that go? This confusion is something my guest today also grappled with. I don't know about the energy part. I think she had pretty clear where her energy was going, but definitely the identity crisis. If not my job, then who am I? For 14 years, Dr. Nyla Bari was one of the core people who made Columbia Business School the place it was. That's where I met her back in, back in my old MBA days. And, you know, just like I was Maricela from Elevate, she was Nyla from Columbia. (laughs) In fact, when I told my friends I was interviewing her for the podcast, I said, oh, I'm interviewing Nyla Bari. And they looked at me like, who? So I said, Nyla from CBS. And they knew. Immediately, it was like, oh, Nyla. So me and my friends, we knew Nyla as the Dean of Students at Columbia when we were there. And honestly, she really kicked butt at that job. I mean, she was so good, so present, so available to the students. She was fantastic. And she loved her work. Until the moment she realized maybe her job had taken over her identity. Maybe she had given everything to that job and didn't have a clear idea of who she was. Now, this story is really interesting, and it really resonated with me because of how similar that that core belief was. It was really great for me to talk to someone who, like she put it, had fallen out of love with her work. I felt that. I felt that very deeply. I really enjoyed my conversation with Nyla. It was so great catching up with her and talking to her again and just, you know, learning what life was like now post her role. So let's get to it. 
I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. See you next time. You can share a little bit and kind of introduce yourself uh, to the audience. That would be lovely. So, okay, well, we'll start with my name. My name is Nyla Bari. Um, I live in northern New Jersey where I grew up and moved back here with my family now 18 years ago. My daughter is going to actually turn 20 in the spring. So we moved back when she was one. And I had left this kind of New York suburb thinking, like, I am so done with this place. Get me out of here. Um, and then I spent a long, long time in New York, as you know. <laughs> and then, you know, babies are hard. And working motherhood is hard. And um, I was, like, wailing to my mom about how hard it was and how difficult it was to find a nanny. You didn't even decide what we were going to do. Were we going to do daycare or whatever? And she raised her hand and said, you know what, they're offering retirement packages. Here's a funny transition out of work. She was, had worked as an engineer for many, many years and was at Lucent at the time. And they were, they were asking people to retire, basically. And she was like, I will, and I will watch your kid. And so she watched both of my girls for the first, I mean, for my older one, she was with her till she was about 10, almost full time. And then, and then when my little one turned about four or five, then I decided that I needed to leave Columbia, which we'll talk about. Yep. And then I, you know, my life changed. But for the first many years of my daughter's lives, their grandmother was like the third parent. So my husband and I both worked full time. My father, my, their grandfather was still working at the time. So my mom mean did everything for us. So that's how I ended up back in New Jersey. So I'm a wife, mom to two girls. I am a coach, a teacher, a podcaster. And I am somebody who thinks about work a lot and um really i actually really love it i also do other things i cook dinner a lot i garden a little bit i read a lot hang out with my friends go to the gym but i think about work a lot and you said you loved it see i think about work a lot and i'm not sure if i love it mm. well i think that's part of the path right because i don't right we'll talk as the conversation goes on about the, the stories we're told about what work is supposed to mean to and whether it's supposed to be the central activity in our lives or whether we're supposed to blow it off. And I often think what I find is the stories are over those extremes. You're either supposed to find your purpose and spend every waking hour considering how to maximize it. Right. This is the story you believe. This is the story. I mean, I say this now more openly than I used to. I think I participated in the machinery that had you believing that i think any of us who participate in higher education particularly business schools law schools professional schools like this we are in the business of reinforcing the message that work is the pathway to a good life yeah. and if you get work right then the rest of life will be okay and that's i think debatable mm -hmm. and then conversely right now i think exiting the pandemic the last couple of years the message is like screw work it's just a job and I don't know if that's gray either. You know, I suspect the truth is somewhere in the middle and most of us don't like that gray. And the work of navigating ambiguity is hard. It would be easier to either say, help me figure out that thing I must do that's going to unlock my entire life or help me get away with doing the bare minimum so I can enjoy myself and work just because I need to pay the bills. I, I had never heard it like so kind of black and white like how you're framing it but it makes total sense to me and i feel that we might go from one end 
to of the spectrum to the other, or at least that that's kind of how I feel now. I, I never phoned it in because my work was my life. It was all consuming. It was my identity. I was, and I say it, I was Mighty Seda from Elevate. Full stop. Yeah. And I was Nyla from Columbia. Yeah. I, I mean, to, ironically, to me, you're still like Nyla from Columbia. Huh. To thousands and thousands of people like you, I still am. And actually, there's a story about how that belief was the thing that triggered my kind of unlocking from the institution. We'll get there. Yeah, I'm going to need to hear all that. But yeah. but conversely, now that I left, it, I mean, literally, my podcast is called Should I Just Quit My Job? Like, it, it was <laughs> just like, I can't do this anymore. Like, yeah. I can't. So it's interesting. And I do think a lot of it might also be generational trends and, and, and how life has changed and what people are coming up the ranks. But I can see that. Like, I, I can understand that there, there's a lot of gray in between. And it's not where we live, mostly. And it takes effort and it takes patience. And we want resolution, especially when work hurts, which it often does. We want it to be clean. Like either I'm just in the wrong place. I'm in the wrong fit. So help me find the fit. Like we're a jello mold or something. Like just put me in the right shape. Yeah. Or help me figure out how to just not think about work. How to push it to the recesses of my mind and just deal with the bare minimum so I can do the things I really want to do. But the number I'm going to say to you that I say to everybody who will listen to me is that we will work 90,000 hours in our life. I just saw your face fall. <laughs> I hate to say it, but that's kind of the response I'm looking for. I want to say that number and have you wake up and say, what the hell am I doing? If I haven't figured out how to be like in relationship with the activity where I spend most of my time, then what the fuck am I doing? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I will spend more time working than I will spend with my children. I will spend more time working than I will do any other conscious activity in my life. I should sleep more than I work. But most people I know don't. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. So if that's the dominant activity in our lives, I feel obliged to look at it purposefully and to do something about it and to help people figure out what am I going to do about this entity that I spend most of my life engaging with? I could be pissed at it all the time. I can resent it. I can be submissive to it, surrender to it. Or perhaps like any other relationship, I can learn how to be healthfully engaged. Like present, decisive, purposeful, receptive, open, like figure it out. And that's why I do the work I do. It's, it, I don't know, I just had a, such a visceral reaction to that number because I know that that is where the majority of our time is spent. But when you say it so starkly, like it is, mm -hmm. no wonder we think it's our life because it is most of the time of our lives. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think that can be oppressive and demoralizing or it can be the launch pad for like figuring it out and doing the work and getting it sorted and by the way revisiting it over and over through our lives because i'm sure you know like the person who joined elevate what was it 11 years ago and the person who exited is a different person like you've matured you've grown you developed massively that's right yeah. so we need to we need a toolkit for like reinvestigating and redeciding yeah and, I, and i've been i've been thinking about that a lot too because you know before elevate as at columbia and before, and the person who I was at Columbia is massively different. We had our 10-year reunion last year. And I remember, like, my classmates being like, of all of us, you're the person that's changed the most. And I'm like, how? Okay. Really? <laughs> um, I'm like, hope for 
the better, but whatever. And before that, it was a, I was a different person. Like it's, it, we evolve, and and that's I think the whole point of it. We are adaptive creatures, and those of us who can adapt survive, right? So, let's do it. So I want to hear a little bit about kind of your story. I actually don't ne- don't really know your like yeah. career journey. I met you when I was at Columbia, and and you were Nyla from Columbia. Just I was Marisela from Elevate. <laughs> right, right. That I think that's yeah, that's for a lot of people, a lot of students. I at the the MBA program, I was. I was pretty much like if you knew me and you worked with me, I was the business person. Yep. I was the per- right. Okay, so I will say this: like I, um, the short story is I, you know, did my undergraduate work in literature, um, English and French literature. Did not think at all about education or business as my future. I thought, you know, if maybe I'd work in publishing or something because I like I like to read. I love books, and then, you know, a couple different reasons why that didn't happen. But I found myself actually three or four years out of college at a wedding at uh, up at Northampton, Massachusetts, where I go to college at Smith. And I was hanging out with one of my professors having a coffee and just saying, like, I just don't really love anything I'm doing in New York in my 20s. Do you have any ideas for me? And she asked me, who are the people whom you ever have come across in your life? And you thought that looks like really cool work, like what they're doing turns you on in one way or another. And that, by the way, is like something I still ask people now, like when you notice, when you talk to people, when you get to meet people, when you think about your parents, friends, when you're young, but also your own friends as you grow up, like who is doing stuff that you think is cool. And the person I thought of at the time was the woman who helped me decide to go abroad for my junior year in college, who I was pretty torn. Like I'd never, you know, I, I was away for school, but I'd never gone abroad without my family. And I was pretty torn. I was curious, but I was a little behind academically. I had not taken French classes yet. And she just helped me walk through it. Like that was her job. And I was, I was kind of blown away that I'd never, it had never occurred to me that people who worked on college campuses, like that was their profession. They were just lucky. They had made some choices. Um, and college was so transformative for me that I thought, oh, I could do that. Like, that sounds interesting. So I ended up going getting a master's in education and telling myself I was going to look for a job on campus. And I went to school at Penn and I was working at the Wharton School as an intern. So I suddenly kind of fell into business schools and but at that point, I had met the man who I would marry, who was my husband, and he was in New York. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to leave Philly and go back to New York. And I applied for a job at Columbia Business School through the New York Times. If I could date myself, it was a, it was a print ad. In fact, they were hiring a number of people, a bunch of roles open in admissions. And I just like sent in a resume and a cover letter. And I had a temp job as like some, some like prepaid legal firm. And I would check the messages at my parents' house every day because... I was living with them and I got a call from the admissions office from Linda Meehan, who you might remember. Mm-hmm. And she's like, can you come in for an interview? And that's how I got in the door at Columbia. And I ended up staying for almost 18 years. Um, so I did one year in the office of admissions and I realized I really loved being around students. And that had been the reason to go back to school for me. So I ended up just I befriended the vice dean. He was like, I think you're great. I think they're going to love you. I'm going to put you in a student affairs facing you all. And I ended up doing that for a long, long time. I was, you know, assistant director, then director, and then became the dean of students. And I did that for about 15 years that I was there. I was very young, put into a big role really fast. And I think that's part of what fed into the sense that, like, it was kismet. I loved this job. When I tell you, like you say, I was Maricela from Elevate. I mean, I was Nyla from Columbia Business School. It was so much a part of 
who I thought I had, I was and was becoming. I felt that it was so uniquely fitting of the person I wanted to be. I wanted to be a helper. I wanted to be of service. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a coach and advisor. I wanted to lead a team and everything I thought I wanted was materializing. So I, th- the, the, the sense I had for myself was that this wasn't a job. It was like destiny. And I remember having a conversation because a lot of students would come in and say, like, I want a job. That, the way that you feel about your job is how I want to feel about my job. I want to feel that connection. I want to feel that relationship. I want to feel that certainty. And I remember confiding in a student once, like, I don't really know how this happened. Like, I think there was like divine intervention that brought me into this role and that allows it to keep growing as I evolve. It felt supernatural. Yeah. I mean, which is crazy in retrospect. I'm like, yeah, it's it's a blessing. It's a wonderful effect. But it also, I think it robbed me of the opportunity to really examine. Like thinking that way robbed me of the responsibility of saying, Nyla, why does this work right now? And what what is it really telling you about you? Where is the distinction between the role and you? And what would you need from a role or an organization to stay happy? I kind of wasn't paying attention to that, if I'm honest, which is how I think I ended up falling out of love. Like, I, I, we're rushing through what was, you know, 14 years of magic and not being a student's job. And I, you know, had my children. I started my doctoral program. You know, I had, by that time, I'd gotten married. All those things that happened in that role. So, in addition to just loving the work and the students and the team, I had hired everybody who reported to me. I had also totally melded my personal life milestones with that job. That job had been this constant while my life was changing. I was getting married. We were buying a house. We were having children. I was starting a PhD. For, like, all those things were happening. And it was like Columbia was like the other partner in my life. I had my husband and I had my job. And they were like these co-partners in my life as it was evolving. It was super weird. And I remember, like, you know, having milestone, like, I turned 30. I turned 35, and I was about to turn 40. And somebody asked me, you think you're going to turn 50 in this chair? They just said it, like, like one of my colleagues. And I was like, yeah, probably. And then it felt like overnight, but it wasn't overnight. It was, like, a year of events. I felt out of love with that job. And I think a couple things were happening. One, I was turning 40, and I was just kind of doing some of that, for better or for worse, that kind of evaluation. I'd met so many milestones. Like, I hadn't wanted kids. I'd had kids. I'd wanted to buy a house. We had bought a house. I thought I would finish my PhD by that point. I did not. But I I had met all these milestones, and I thought, like, is this, am I actually going to turn 50 in this chair? Like, am I done? And that investigation, I think, just opened things up. I don't think it answered a question, but I think it uh, asked a good question. And then a few things happened. My boss was leaving, and he had been my person, right? And had two really significant bosses in that role. One was the guy who kind of promoted me and elevated me, but didn't provide for me the real leadership I wanted. The second person really did. He was really a fair, just, thoughtful, respectful person. I, I really valued working for him, and it was coming. His time was coming to an end in that role, and it just required me to think about if I had the energy to upskill someone new. Hmm. And what ended up happening is that they brought someone in I didn't really have a ton of hope for. I was right. That's kind of secondary. And I just didn't have it in me. Mm-hmm. 
the bigger thing that was happening though was that I was doing research on my off. So at the same time that my boss was exiting and my Dubai was onboarding and I was um, turning 40, I was doing research on people who had been laid off because I had, I was a long suffering doctoral student. And it was just, we were trying to get a study. We, me and my advisor, who was like 70 years old, they kept saying to me, Nyla, please finish before I die. Um, <laughs> like, I said, we designed a study around layoff. And I was like, just interviewing long form, qualitative interviews of people who had their hearts broken by work. Many of whom were former students, many of whom were like, you know, you put a call out saying, I'm doing a study. I just need to talk to people who've been laid off. And the, the, the requests were coming in. People were like, I want to talk about this. And that like year, eight, eight months of collecting data really gave me this vocabulary around building a relationship with work because I started to see how, how messed up people could become because of the belief they had held about work. Work is my life, work is my identity. I am my work without this title. I don't have anything. My wife will leave me. My husband will leave me. My kids won't respect me. I'll have no reason to go on. This is worse than my divorce. Like, Things that were real and I was just shocked by because in a way I'd been so in it, I hadn't observed it. And I was watching people have their lives ripped apart by a separation from work. And I thought, I'm at risk of this. This is me. I'm that person there. The person who you kind of look at from an academic perspective and run them through three theoretical frameworks and truly almost like, oh my God, I'm that person who without this job, I feel confused about who I am. I'm, I'm someone's mother and wife. I have a strong identity as a student and myself and as a person who loves the things she loves. And still, I am consumed by this job. I go to bed thinking about this job. I wake up thinking about this job. When I have a bad day at work, I have a bad day in my life. When I have a great day at work, I have a great day in my life. What is this? And then the story. Um, that spring, this was a 2013-2014. I'm at another event for graduation because if you remember business school, we threw lots of parties. <laughs> so many. <laughs> So many parties. So, and I had to go to many, many of them. And I was at a barbecue. It was spring. It was like two days before graduation. It was midday. And of course, because we were at the business school, we were serving beer in the middle of the day. And one of my, a student who I had, who had been a part of a number of the activities I had run, like he'd been around a lot. He knew my whole team. I had a lot of affection for him. He came and he was sentimental as MBAs often are at the end of their journey. And he comes up to me. He's had a few drinks and he says, Nyla, this place is awesome, and you're part of the reason it's so awesome. I was like, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, we, we all work so hard for you guys. I'm so glad it was a great experience for you. And he said, when I have kids, now mind you, he's like 25. He's got no kids. When I have kids, I'm going to send them to business school right here, and I'm going to have them look you up. And I said, I said, that's like at least 25 years from now. If you had a baby tomorrow. And... 25 years from now, I'm not going to be here. And he looked at me seriously, like tilted his head. And he looked at me and said, well, where would you go? Wow. What would you do? You are Columbia Business School. And Columbia Business School is you. Now, I suspect he meant that way. Yes. I'm sure he did. But how I heard it was like, I can't even describe the feeling. I was frozen. Because I thought, this is how he sees me. And the worst part is, I agree with him. What was I going to do? I had no idea. What was I going to do? Who was I without this job? Professionally and maybe even more broadly speaking. Who was I without this job? 
And I went, I like thanked him, <laughs> told my team I needed to go for a walk. I went inside and I called my husband and I said, I need to quit this job. This job has taken over my entire life. And he, of course, was like, yeah, no doubt. Like, I've been watching it for years. And, you know, he wasn't mad about it. But he was like, yeah, something, if, if this, if this, it's, if you can't see yourself separate from this, we have some work to do. And that was the beginning of the end for me. So there had been all these sentiments kind of leading me to wonder, if could it last? Was it going to last? Was it enough? Was I going to be like these people who, if they lost their job, would have nothing left in their eyes? And then this one comment that was, you know, you have to have those crucible moments where you're like, I cannot do this anymore. And again, I think he was coming from a good, honest place of, of gratitude and appreciation for the work that my team did. And he and I had a, you know, had done work together. And I think he was really meaning like, Nyla, specifically, you have helped me a lot in this program. And our work together has meant something. And I believe that. And he also unlocked for me the sense that like, I was, I felt out of imagination, which is not something I had ever felt before. I felt absolutely without an idea of what I could do. Wow. You know, as you were telling your story and particularly at the beginning where you were like, your life continued to change. You had kids, you got married, you bought a house, all these things. Did it feel like the job was kind of this rock or like safety in a way? Yes, that's a, you know, it's a beautiful way to say it. In fact, I often talk about like when there were hard times in my personal life, work was stable, right? Right. Like when we went through difficult times, I lost a baby in between the two girls. Um, and I felt like totally unmoored by that experience, of course. And I was like, I know how to work and work is stable and steady. And there's always things to do. And there are people who count on me and I can walk into the building and feel like I belong. And I do important work and I know, I know what to do. Even when it was hard, like I felt that my instincts had been so honed that I was always resourceful in that context. Meanwhile, you know, you, your kids are growing. One of my children has ADHD and I was learning what to do about that. And I felt so ill-equipped in those domains, but I was like, at least at work, I'm kind of, I'm the boss. I'm the pro, I'm the resident expert and all these random things I had become expert on. So yeah, work was steady when the rest of the world could feel chaotic, which is, um, what's an interesting thing, thing to think about. Is that your experience also? Well, so my experience I think is a little different because I haven't gotten married. I haven't had kids. So for me, it was I guess, actually, I guess in a way, yes, it was my safety. It was where I belonged. It was where I felt like I could give and do and not feel all the other feelings of inadequacy that could come up from not doing or having the life that I thought I would be having on my personal side. So, right. yeah, I think in a, in, a, in a little bit of a different way, but yes. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot, I think what work does for a lot of us, and I'm not I can't say I think that's instantly a terrible thing. Right. I think that it is something we have to pay attention to. But I think the dominant narrative, and I'm curious about what you think about this, because I'm also, I like to couple into all my stuff about work, the fact that I'm a first-generation American. And there are a lot of messages delivered to people who have a story like mine, like an immigration story or a first-generation story where the American dream exists and it, it exists and work is the channel through which yep. you could realize it, right? Like that is, it is the thing that legitimizes immigration mm -hmm. 
it is the thing that makes it okay for our families to have sacrificed. Yeah. And so work is, is, is a pathway and it's also a foundation for a good life. And so when things either are moving fast or not moving at all in a personal life the way you want them to, or when there's you know hiccups as there inevitably are in personal lives, it's like work is the bedrock, so it's okay. Because as long as work feels good, you can figure out the rest. And that, I think, is a faulty narrative, but it's a narrative I know I'm unlearning. You know, I'm turning 50 in a few weeks, and like I'm unlearning that right now. And I know almost every client I work with is unlearning something along those lines, whether it comes from immigration or not. There is a message they were told about what work could do for them, how it would keep them safe. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, and I think... Immigration is one part, but there's a lot. In my case, I I would say, too, after going to business school, and I want to go back to, at the beginning, you said the business school complex and part of the things that kind of ingrain these notions in us. When you said it, I didn't realize it, but now that you're talking about this aspect, I spent the first maybe five years working at Elevate. Granted, I have loved my job. I loved it with all my heart. I was, just like you, the happiest person doing a lot of things. The first five years, not so much. And a lot of it was because I felt guilty for having gone to business school to do all that work, pay all that money, and then not be making the amount of money that a lot of people around me were because I decided to go do something that was more purpose-driven, which was you know, my own issue of like success and how you define it. Right. Which, oh, and thank you for saying that. And I wish it was, it's not your issue. It's all, it's everybody's issue. Yeah. I think that's, you know, this is one of, and again, I'm not mad at business schools. No. I love Columbia. I still have I do unbelievable too. regard for Columbia Business School. I met incredible uh, students and faculty. Many of my good friends still work there. I'm, and it shaped my life beautifully. I have no, no regrets. Any problems were my doing because I didn't pay attention to the years passing and I kind of got lulled to sleep, right? That's a good way of putting it. And that's okay. But I do think it does kind of reinforce particular messages around success, ambition, accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the work we have to do as we develop and, then you know, a lot of the work I do as a coach now is helping people figure out what that means to them now. I hear this a lot. Like, I put so much money into my education. I took a seat. Well, I don't even remember what the admissions rate is now, but I took a seat from somebody. And, you know, everything from I'm working in a non-for-profit to I started a business and I'm not profitable yet to I've stayed home with my children. And I, you know, air quote, feel guilty about that. That is so worth investigating because what is the belief structure that has any of these choices creating guilt for you? But again, this is all about what we think is, is supposed to be true about work versus what our lives reveal to us actually is true. Yeah. About work. It's so interesting. So you have this conversation and it feels like almost this this student is saying something and I and I agree with you, it's probably from the best place, but kind of it seems like he pulls up a mirror so that you can actually see like gears turning of something you already know, yes. but you kinda don't. Yeah, and I think it was something that I might have allowed to simmer for a long time had he not said that to me. Because, I, you know, the, the kind of cousin of feeling like, you know, divine intervention had brought me to this job was feeling obliged to the job. Yeah. Was starting to feel like, I can't leave. 
because i mean there's also ego and shit tied up in here right like i can't who would do this if not me i built this job yep. right <laughs> i was the first dean of students columbia business school ever had they built that job around me with my counsel and then i like i said i hired all the people who worked yep. around me i built all the structures the, the students experienced and i was like if i leave i mean oh the hubris it's like mortifying now oh it will crumble around me and i'll be responsible for the fall of a great city you know like what was that no, about I, oh i feel that right <laughs> so <laughs> oh, so gross but yes there was definitely some of that and so you know i did feel like i can't leave and in fact a mistake i made that i would i would not make again and i would if someone were to ask me for advice i'd say don't prolong your own agony for what you perceive to be the greater good. I had a, I had a story I told myself that it would be too hard on my team, it would be too hard on the student body, that it would be disruptive, if you can believe it, to the student satisfaction surveys. And in fact, that was reinforced. So like the dean's office said to me, if you could just keep it going, I was like, I gotta go. Like, I think the time has come up. I'm at a point in my life, I've been here long enough. Things are running well. And they asked me to stay so that I wouldn't disrupt the cycle of things. And that stroked the ego, as you can imagine it might have. And in retrospect, none of that was necessary. Life would have gone on. Life has gone on. They've done beautifully. They've hired, I think they're on to the second person after me, and it's gone beautifully. They didn't need me. We shouldn't have been so afraid. I was afraid. They were afraid. We made a fear-based decision to prolong the pain. And that last year was very hard on me. And at some point, I kind of exited my office and kind of took an adjacent role where I was doing some research and helping. And frankly, we should have, you know, cut the string, had a clean break. I think sometimes we make things harder on ourselves because we think we're creating a benefit or an easy off-ramp. I'd really poke at that truth and see if it's, if it's real. I think most of the time, it's time to go. When you know it's time to go, it's time to go. Did you know what you wanted to do, like, after? Hard no. No. And I think that was part of why I let myself stay for that kind of, you know, that gap year, so to speak. Um, I told myself I needed a year, and I needed to be employed for that year to do it, and or to figure it out. And in retrospect, I did not. We did not need it financially. I did not need it from the status perspective. It was just fear. I did not know what I wanted to do. I had told myself for some time, which is why that conversation with the student was so hard on me, that there were, I had no other options. My only other option was go to another top 10 business school and do exactly that job elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I'd had over the years, you know, all the schools we talk and we would go to conferences together and like my peers at HBS, my peers at Stanford would be like, if ever you guys feel like relocating, call us, we'll build something for you. Like I have great advocates elsewhere. But I remember saying to my husband, like, it just feels like I'm like, just rinsing and repeating. I can't, like, I don't think it would ever be as special as it was at Columbia. Columbia was very special for me and for my family. And I'm in New York. Like, I'm from here. Like, I'm, where am I going to do? Am I going to go to Boston? Like, I'm not. The hardest part about the conversation was my recognition that I lacked imagination. I actually couldn't answer the question. And I felt paralyzed, totally paralyzed. And my, you know, I felt the only other option is to repeat this job elsewhere. Or to go hang a shingle and do I'm not sure what. Because like, people would say to me, go start a business. You're such a good coach, such a good teacher, go start a business. And I would be like, I don't even know what I would help people do. Because I'm not sure what I'm good at yet. The school had been generous enough to hire a coach for me the year I had my second daughter. And I was transitioning back from, you know, 
leave. And I was also at that point taking over a larger office. I called her and I said, hey, can I pay you myself this time around to help me figure out what would be next, just to help me. And that was, I think, one of the things I did right was I got help. Because you have, you know, your advocates, your best friends and your husband saying, you can do anything. And they're like, that is not helpful information. Like, that doesn't mean anything. But, you know, yes and not helpful. And then I had my own brain, which was like, you can't do anything. So I needed someone to help cut through the noise. And I worked with her for a few months and I started thinking about what I actually loved to do, where I actually had skills and talents and, was, you know, there were results to back it up. Um, I started to think about the same things now I would work with my own clients on, you know, when they're in these transitions. Like, as I say all the time, pay attention to what you pay attention to. Like the stuff that you're willing to get into an argument over at the dinner table and the stuff that you can't stop reading about online or the movies that you want to watch all the time or the problems in the world that just aggravate you, you can't let go of. And I ended up, I mean, it was a long probably six months of investigation um i'm very fortunate i had a great network you have a great network any folks who are listening to this who are you know part of our cbs network I mean, we're very blessed yep called a lot of people had a lot of coffee drank a lot of coffee a lot of coffee <laughs> for six months and i have to say i learned from the folks who i interviewed when the one you know part of my study was designed to understand why some people thrive after layoff and what people who don't thrive do differently. And definitely getting out there, talking with people and asking for help was an obvious place to begin. So I did that. The move I ended up making was going into a company, working in their talent and learning development function as an internal coach, as a trainer and teacher, and then like in designing content. Kind of went in saying, this is going to be my two-year visit. I never really worked in a business. I went and worked for a privately held, like a PE held um, company. Did that. I thought I was going to stay for two years. I stayed for about three and a half. In the meantime, just put a call out to like 25 people saying, hey, I'm going to start coaching on the side when you're ready. Do you ever need anything? And people were like, yes, I need help. And that, there was a pivot point where actually I got laid off from that company. And Ooh. yeah, which was a, a beautiful circle closure for me. Yeah. <laughs> And I've been working on my own ever since. There are two, three very different settings. Yeah. <laughs> like, insanely different settings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was there any thread that went through that, that you were like, this, this makes me happy and has been in all of these? I think the kind of work, like being in a, like, I'm a, I always think I'm like a teaching and learning person. Yeah. First and foremost. So any work that has me exposed to how people learn and helping people push themselves and investigate themselves and try new skills and i like any environment I like any work that has us transformed through learning i loved the business school i loved chaos i've always it's funny now in my older as i'm older and i like like a quieter life but in my 20s and 30s you know even going back to college i've always liked to be in the middle of everything i like a lot of noise i like a lot of activity i like a lot of relationships the business school suited that part of me i missed that a lot when i got to the company I was at, it felt really quiet and really structured and kind of boring comparatively. I mean, how do you compare? Yeah, that's my fear. <laughs> I mean, but that's what I think you have to know. Like, if you know those elements mean something to you, you know, I think about it like a list of ingredients. 
if you know you need the next job to have those ingredients and you know right we have to know what we want we always begin the work to figure out what we want that question i couldn't answer for myself at that barbecue for the next like the week when i was in a state of panic was like i don't know what i want i think the mistake i made was thinking about i want to be a dean of students again and another i was thinking about the title i was thinking about the kind of organization rather than thinking about like the kind of work i want to do kind of people I want to do it with, the kind of context, the environment where I feel most alive. I didn't know that at the time. I learned that through my process, but I realized I missed that. I didn't know. I thought I was tired of it. And I was, but I think I, I went, I overcorrected. Now in like working for myself, I have to manage the, op like there's always a risk of loneliness. So I have to, I have to manage that. I'm busy all the time. I am very fortunate. I have a very busy practice. I have a lot of great clients and partners and projects that I do, but I have to also keep myself engaged. I have to make sure I don't let too many days go by where I don't leave the office or don't leave the house. But the work has been constant. Teaching and learning work has always been my thing. You know, you were laid off, but then instead of going and saying, I'm going to go look for something else, you decided to actually work for you, like start yeah. your coaching practice full time. Were you scared? I was nervous about particular things. But I would not say that I was just scared. And you know what? I also have I've learned, and I think leaving Columbia helped as part of the developmental experience that taught me this. Like, I'm not sure if I feel scared. That's a reason not to do something, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I don't like to be flip about it and be like, be scared and do it anyway. I want to be thoughtful and say like, okay, so fear might tell me that this is important to me. Fear might tell me that I have real considerations, like I have kids, I have to save for college, I have a mortgage, I'm responsible for part of that. It's not necessarily something that I'm going to run from or towards. I just kind of want to coexist with it peacefully. I was scared about revenue, of course. I was thinking, like, can I sustain a business? Can I sustain, like, can I meet my salary in doing this? I had, like, some apprehension about putting myself out there. And I think some of that comes from having spent so long in higher education because higher education is like this super hierarchical environment. It's like the Catholic mm. church. You know, it's like there's the tenured faculty, they're the everything, and the rest of you are just lucky to be there. And that had kind of gotten ingrained in me. Like, stay in your place. Like, know who you are. Know what you're great at. But don't get too big for your approaches, because that had been a lot of being a senior leader in academia can feel like that. Um, so I was just like testing, 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 experimenting constantly. Uh, and again, I credit the people I interviewed in that study because they were the ones like this whole notion that I talk about a lot about using experiments as part of your strategy to grow in your role or to ask for promotion or to leave a job and start something new. So I was like, I'm going to take the advice I got from my participants in my study. And they were taking small, safe, measurable experiments and trying things out. And then just adopting that mentality really helped me. Like, what would happen if I built a website? What would happen if I emailed 100 students and said, I'm now coaching and I'm available if you have something you would like to support? What would happen if I posted on LinkedIn and said, I'm starting a business? And not, none of those decisions turned out to be fatal. So I just kept going. Um, so I've like learned to like kind of sit with the anxiety and the fear and the worry and just be like, okay, like I see you, feel you. You can hang out here, but I'm going to decide anyway. 
So when you were talking about your study of people who were laid off, you said, you know, you saw what the characteristics were of people who would thrive after it. And one of them was asking for help. Yeah. And I'm assuming you see this something similar with your clients, particularly they, yeah, just by being your clients are already looking for that. Support. That's right. That's right. And here's what I'll say. You know, it's not that they're characteristics, it's behavior, which I've always found to be a relief because I don't have to be a naturally optimistic person to change my life. I just have to be willing to try a few things. You know, I have to be willing to act in my own service. So I could try by asking for help. I could set up these experiments. I had to learn how to talk about my work without using my title. Ooh. Because Dean of Students is like a sexy title mm -hmm. that only makes sense to you if you know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, what does that mean? And I remember my coach... And it was so odd because I was I was doing my research in that last year. I was like furiously taking notes and coding data and also trying to figure out my life, um, which was a very tiring period of my life. I do not recommend doing both at once. But she would say, like, let's pretend I don't have any idea what how academia is structured. Tell me what your job is. And I would be like, oh, I don't know. And that exercise of sitting down and thinking about what is the work that I do? that actually turns me on? What is the work that I do that's worth it to be away from my beautiful children? What is the work that is worth it for me to fight at the dean's office table for a resource or for a point of view? That exercise, I was watching my participants do at the same time. I'm no longer the vice president of marketing. So what is the work that I do? Right, a title is shorthand. It's practical, but it's not actually descriptive. So when you think about the work that you used to do, as the CEO of Elevate, what is the work that really lit you up or you felt like you were uniquely qualified to make an impact on the organization? It's very easy to say I was the president, I was the CEO. Mm -hmm. It's harder work to say there's a handful of activities that I led, I strategized, I designed that really shaped the way that we worked and the outcomes that we had. Yeah, that's a very good way of um, questioning it. For me, it's always been, I've, I've always considered myself a generalist. So I very much struggle with the idea of like, I know a little bit of a lot of things, not a lot, a whole lot of one thing. And also, it's not just the title for me, it's the explanation of where I worked. Because if I say I work for a network for professional women, blank stairs, unless you're in that world. Right, right, right. So, so that's, I think, the work yeah. we all have to do, you have to do right now, Yeah, which is like do the descriptive investigation and the inquiry internally, validate it with people who worked with you. So, you know, I often say to my clients, I send them out and say, talk to people about how they see you and what they come to you for, because they're going to give you language about your skills, your talents, and your gifts. They're going to tell you, I come to you, I want to run something by you or get your eyes on something because. Uh, and that might be within an organizational structure. It might be just you, what you know how to do. But I always say it's patient work. Like it's not, it's easier if we could all like have a job that, you know, if you think about SAT forms and all those other forms you filled out for business school, they give you like 12 boxes and you put like candlestick maker or coach or marketer in there for that matter. It's a lot harder to design an awareness of what you actually do. But that, I think, is the only way to go find it again. Yeah. I like to ask this of, of, of coaches. It's because I think you all see 
so many different cases, but I think deep down there's a lot of similarities, mm. like the way we struggle with when it comes to work. What is there something that you say is um, gets in the way of many of your of your clients or people you see? One of the things I see a lot of people struggle with is clarifying their want and then not apologizing. And I might, I might even use you as an example, like that this kind of narrative of like, I really feel my best when I'm working in an environment that's advancing a social good, but I feel like mm -hmm. I might be wasting my education. That kind of tension becomes a blocker for a lot of people. So they say, I really want a job with a lot of creativity because I love leading creative teams, but I'm actually not a creative person myself, so I probably should. I really would love to work for an organization that, um, you know, I have had my eye on for a while, but I'm afraid they're going to ask me to travel and have kids at home. I really want to exert, assert myself in the leadership team meeting and articulate where I'm coming from when I take a position, but I don't want to be viewed as difficult or disagreeable. I've only been in my role for a year and I don't. Even getting what you want out of your mouth, but then letting yourself want it and figure out how to get it rather than interfering with yourself immediately, and that is pretty common. Mm. Uh, and whether it's a leadership goal, asking for something, trying something, articulating a strong point of view, or it's a career goal, going after something, starting something. Yeah, you don't even try because you already all have the blocker. I would yeah, say. you've given yourself a lot of reasons why you can't have it. Yeah. You know, and some of them are very deep rooted and some of them are just, you know, it's, it's garbage we picked up on the corner, put in our brain and let it like occupy real estate. And we're like, why, why won't I ask for what I need? Why won't I stand for my, my position on something? We're carrying around some kind of toxic something or other. I've got to figure out how to put down. And that is, I think, one of the best ways a coach can help you. It's very hard. <laughs> but, you know, introspection, reflection, courageous action are all hard. What's easy it's the same stay in a job that you don't love anymore and to wait for someone else to take the action. Mm, that's true. Thank you for taking time to chat. This was incredible. I'm so, so grateful that you asked me to be here today. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate you tuning into Shit, I Just Quit My Job. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. And share with your friends. Thank you again.